One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from Ukraine and discuss the Ukrainian counteroffensive, the artillery war, and learnings from months of battles with analyst George Barros from the Institute for the Study of War. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 1st of November, one year and 249 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today are Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley, and our guest is Geospatial Intelligence Team Lead and Russia Analyst at the Institute for the Study of War, George Barros. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Thanks, David. I'm standing in for Dom in this segment as he's at the US Embassy to see Vice President Kamala Harris. She's in London before travelling to the Global Artificial Intelligence Summit hosted at Bletchley Park, the top secret home, of course, of the World War II codebreakers. I imagine Dom will be in his element. If you've never watched the intricate ballet of spinning gears as one of Turing's bomb machines cracks a Nazi Enigma code. I highly recommend looking it up online. It is a marvel of mathematical precision, almost suggestive of music. But turning to today's intelligence briefings, Ukrainian forces continue offensive operations near Bakhmut and in western Zaporizhia Oblast, according to the Institute for the Study of War. And we're delighted to have George from there with us today. The Ukrainian general staff report that Ukrainian forces continue offensive operations in the Melitopol direction as Russia launches a score of drones and missile strikes overnight targeting military and critical infrastructure. That's come from Ukraine's air forces and they've said that while regional officials said that the Kremenchuk oil refinery was not severely damaged, it does appear to have been hit. On Telegram, the Air Force said that 18 of the 20 Russian-launched Kamikaze Shahid drones were destroyed before reaching their targets. They also said that a repeated target of earlier Russian attacks, that oil refinery, was struck. But we've not been able to independently verify those numbers. 
Speaking of Russian missile strikes, the UN Human Rights Monitoring Mission in Ukraine has urged Russia to investigate the missile strike on Groza that killed 59 civilians in early October. It was one of the deadliest strikes of the war, killing 36 women, 22 men and an eight-year-old boy. The UN mission has said it has reasonable grounds to believe that a Russian Iskander missile, that's one of those short-range precision-guided ballistic ones, probably caused the blast. Now, I mention it because such incidents are often blamed on either side and by both sides, but people are actually trying to work out who is responsible for each of these attacks because, of course, it has major implications on war crimes uh, trials in the future. So, of course, we will continue to monitor that. Now, turning to the political realm, we've spoken at length in the past fortnight about the ongoing debate within the US regarding combined and continued support to Ukraine in light of the developments in the Middle East. Well, President Biden has, of course, sought to combine the two issues in that $105 billion package we've discussed at length. But that's much to the anger of some of the hardline Republicans. And as such, the president has doubled down and said that he would veto a House of Representatives Republican bill to provide aid to Israel, but not to Ukraine, were that bill that's been put forward to pass both chambers. So the White House have said, in contrast to the president's national security package, this bill provides no aid whatsoever to Ukraine. That is an urgent requirement. I'll come in a moment to the Time magazine article, which has been the source of considerable comment and concern in the last 24 hours, which also discusses in detail that matter of US support. But we'll, as I say, continue to look at that. I'll just end this section with the news that the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, will visit South Korea next week for wide-ranging discussions on issues including a nuclear-armed North Korea. So according to Seoul's foreign ministry, Mr. Blinken will arrive next Wednesday for a two-day trip, marking his first visit to the country since March 2021. It comes as Seoul and Washington ramp up defence cooperation in the face of a record-breaking series of weapon strikes by Pyongyang this year, and of course that delivery of weapons to Russia, which we've discussed at length as well. It speaks again, I think, to the evolving geopolitical picture as attention tilts to other fronts beyond Ukraine, though not necessarily at its expense. Well, thanks very much for all of that, Francis. You you mentioned the Time op-ed just a moment ago there. As you said, perhaps the most discussed article online for many months by Ukraine watchers and Ukrainians. What's it all about and why has it provoked such a reaction? Sure, well, I think in part that reaction is because of where it is published, the influential Time magazine, the timing of its publication at a delicate moment for Ukraine and its contents. It is called Nobody Believes in Our Victory Like I Do, inside Vladimir Zelensky's struggle to keep Ukraine in the fight. It's by Simon Schuster. And in essence, though I can't go into all of its nuances here, I just would point listeners to read it, it paints a very depressing picture of Ukraine's position in the war. It quotes Zelensky quite extensively, depicting him as defiant but deflated. The scariest thing is that part of the world got used to the war in Ukraine, it quotes him as saying. Exhaustion with the war rolls along like a wave. You see it in the United States. You see it in Europe. 
Schuster writes, The usual sparkle of his optimism, his sense of humour, his tendency to liven up a meeting in the war room with a bit of banter or a bawdy joke, none of that has survived the second year of all-out war. An advisor told me that Zelensky feels betrayed by his Western allies. They've left him without the means to win the war, only the means to survive it. Yet the piece also says that Zelensky's belief in Ukraine's ultimate victory over Russia has hardened into a form that worries some of his advisers. It has become immovable, verging on the messianic. He deludes himself, one of his closest aides tells Schuster in frustration. We're out of options, we're not winning, but try telling him that. Faced with the alternative of freezing the war or losing it, Zelensky sees no option but to press on throughout the winter and beyond. The article also looks at his trip to the US as a failure. It emphasises scepticism within Congress and looks at some of the damaging examples of alleged corruption within Ukraine. Broadly speaking, for many, it takes as a given the idea that Ukraine's position is crippled, that Zelensky is wrong, in his diagnoses of the war, and the most Ukrainians and apparently close advisers want peace. These are, of course, huge assumptions to state as fact. Hence, I think, the anger from critics. They say that the piece focuses far too much on Zelensky, has far too many anonymous quotations from so-called advisers, and too little about the Ukrainian people themselves, who, of course, strongly back the definition of victory Zelensky is pushing for, and are bleeding and dying for it. They also say that it ignores the progress Ukraine has made to get to this point, the fact that Zelensky was right at the beginning of the war, the fact that Russia had fundamentally failed in its core war aims, and that Kiev's analysis has been right about so much, including the dangers of violence being encouraged by the West's enemies around the world the longer the war in Ukraine was allowed to continue. In short, the critics argue, they say this is an opinion piece masquerading as reportage, pointing at the journalists' articles written before the war, like one which argued that sending weapons to Ukraine would be a disaster, and instead that its conclusions are based on false premises. Now, I think it's important we critique the ideas rather than the man. In Ukraine itself, it has triggered heated discussions among politicians and experts, most condemn the article and defend Zelensky, but there are others who say aspects of it do ring true. My own perspective, for what it's worth, is that such bold assertions, taken as fact, really, in the article, require far more words than the piece was given. And what I mean by that is it needs far more context into the counteroffensive, which, as I say, it only really paints as a failure. It needs far more nuance on the situation in America, which is much more complicated than merely saying that America is losing interest in giving Ukraine weapons. It also paints, I think, a very doom-laden picture, particularly when you look specifically at the Russian position, which it doesn't really discuss at all and just sees as fixed and broadly unchanging with regard to its position on the war, which I think is clearly incorrect, or at least an oversimplification in the context of the Wagner mutiny, its severe military losses, the scale of the defeat when measured by what its fundamental war aims were. It doesn't mention the expansion of NATO at all. So many things are missed out that arguably are vital to provide an accurate contextual picture. This is not really a long read. It is a few thousand words and 
for a piece to have the front page to be well really portraying itself or being put as as a definitive piece and a statement of this moment in the war i can understand why many people are, are angered given the lack of detail on many elements of it and yet all of that said i think those who see it as pure nonsense pure fabrication need to reflect on the fact as to why they are so upset it riles at their, at our insecurities. And that's because I think we are in a difficult moment in the war. And it does capture that feeling, I think, one that is full of risk, which is, of course, what makes the facts, the context, the details and the nuance all the more important. And that is perhaps what people feel is really missing here, that perhaps some of its interpretations, its narratives have degrees of truth. But in order to make those statements with confidence and assuredness and with factual accuracy, one has to contextualise them in a much broader canvas. And I don't think this piece really does that. But nonetheless, it is worth reading for some interesting insights, I think, from Zelensky and those who are clearly around him. Well, thank you very much, Francis, for sharing your thoughts there. I'm sure we'll touch on some of the ideas and points raised by the timepiece with our guest, George Barros. George, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast, having met you in Washington when we were over there. Could you just start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your work over the past two years with the Institute for the Study of War? Good afternoon, David and Francis. Thank you so much for bringing me onto the podcast. Absolutely. I work at the Institute for the Study of War, which is an open source intelligence policy research organization based in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm the lead of our geospatial intelligence team. So that is to say we are the team that creates the maps that you're all familiar with. We collect data with remote sensing platforms, space-borne sensors, and we perform geospatial analyses. Uh, besides that, I'm, I'm also a senior member of our Russia research team. My professional training and area expertise is in Russian studies. I've been working on Ukraine issues since 2014, and uh, I've, I've loved every minute of it. Well, thank you for introducing yourself. Um, let, I mean, we've been talking about the Avdivka assaults by Russia intensely over the past few weeks. We've spoken to quite a few guests about this. At the ISW, and for you, what stands out to you about this offensive? How dangerous is this offensive to the Ukrainian forces in the region? Sure thing. Well, the Avdivka offensive from the Russian perspective is very interesting to look at because so far it's it's been a, a catastrophic failure for the Russians. The initial attacks that began on October 10th were not small scale attacks. We initially, and by we, I mean the Institute, we initially assessed them to be a smaller scale operation. We revised that assessment within about two or three days after observing more data. Uh, this was a major combined arms offensive, the objective of which was to envelop and capture Avdivka. And the Russians have sent significant forces there. Over the course of the last month of fighting, the Russians have lost a confirmable 197 vehicles. That's over a brigade's worth of equipment lost in just a couple of short weeks. And it's comparable with about 225 vehicles that Ukrainian forces have lost with the entirety of their five months of fighting uh, in Zaporizhia. Here we see a lot of Russian uh, military forces operating. We have elements of three uh, combined arms armies fighting. The initial offensives were taken up by the Donetsk People's Republic. That is the Russian proxy uh, force that, that's in Donetsk Oblast has been there since 2014. Um, but so far, it, it's been a, a pretty incohesive, incoherent, poorly coordinated offensive. They've run aground, lost a tremendous amount of equipment. 
and Russian sources within their own telegram spaces where they discuss their, their own operations have consistently complained about the lack of coordination between their own units and the inability to be able to move forward. We do not forecast any immediate danger for the Ukrainians losing Avdivka. Again, the Russians have been reinforcing this potential avenue of attack. So it is possible that the Russians might seek to attrit Ukrainians over the long period, sort of like how they did with their approach to capturing Bakhmut. I mean, I, I guess one question for you, considering you look at this daily and you're working on the sort of the, the daily updates we, we often use from the ISW. Did, did this assault surprise you? Did you see it building up or were you surprised when it started? I was a little surprised when it started because, to be perfectly frank, I hadn't been assessing that the Russians had the sufficient manpower to be able to conduct a large-scale offensive of that capacity. So seeing them muster up the forces to do so was surprising, uh, and it did it did check some assumptions that I had about the Russian available force at the time. It was not surprising, however, to see the quality of the attack, or rather the lack thereof and the lack of coordination. That was not surprising. What really astonished me, I think it was October 11th or 12th, I saw this viral piece of combat footage that showed a column of Russian vehicles advancing towards Avdivka's southern flank. And one of the lead vehicles in this column, you know, it it flipped over and fell into a, a reservoir, which was kind of humorous. But the column itself was very densely packed. They didn't have, they weren't spaced out very well. And it wasn't a tactically sound doctrine for moving into contact with the, with an enemy force. And it reminded me of the exact same columns that we saw also using tactically unsound doctrine uh, when they attempted to drive on Kiev and uh, Kiev east, Eastern outskirts near Brovore back from early 2022. And it was interesting to see that over the course, of the last 19, 20 months of the fighting, it seems that there are certain Russian units that still have not been able to master or at least course correct from basic tactical mistakes, uh, which is which was surprising. And I think it's a positive indicator that really the quality of the Russian troops is not improving. So the key factor that they're trying to leverage is going to be replacement and mass. That's a fascinating analysis. Thank you, George. Let's zoom out then a little bit. Francis, in his profile, if you like, of the peace in time, spoke a little bit about the counteroffensive and the views on the counteroffensive. We've seen a sort of spate of commentators um, over the past few weeks arguing that the Ukrainian counteroffensive has failed, certainly in, its, certainly in its goal of liberating territory. It's obviously an incredibly nuanced and sort of difficult question to answer. What are, what are your thoughts as an analyst here? Yeah, this is a very good question, and it's a difficult one because the policy debate space is in a very fraught place. As you know from our previous discussions, ISW, as a matter of policy, we don't assess Ukrainian operations out of their respect for operational uh, security. So I can't declare that, you know, unilaterally the counteroffensive has failed. That said, it's abundantly clear that the counteroffensive has not been going well, that they've hit many stumbling blocks over the course of its conduct. But it's not culminated yet. Ukrainian operations are still ongoing. We can point to daily observed operations. And that said, this campaign, like all campaigns, will eventually culminate. But even if this campaign ultimately fails to achieve its objectives, it doesn't mean that the war is lost. And it also, number two, we're very, very far from a stalemate. It's clear that the Ukrainian counteroffensive did not perform well, And that's largely due to, I think, Ukrainian and Western planning assumptions about this campaign that they didn't pan out and they didn't survive first contact with with the enemy, myself included, with having bad assumptions about how this would play out. 
the doctrine that Western trainers use to try to train Ukrainian forces over the course of last winter and spring going into this, that doctrine also failed upon first contact with the enemy and it forced the Ukrainians to change their tactics. Uh, it assumed that the Ukrainians had sufficient tactical air defense to defend their own forces. It, it assumed that the Ukrainians would be able to do X, Y, and Z. That would be a given in any given NATO campaign, but, but they just thought that it would not be a decisive factor here. And so these are all various different reasons why it didn't pan out. And we can talk about some of those in, in depth. But as far as the uh, the big picture takeaway is concerned, I think the real question now is, in retrospect, looking at the, some of the deficiencies of the way the campaign was planned and executed, do the policymakers now have an honest appraisal of the operational requirements and capability developments necessary for Ukraine to win, not just lose, but win? And therefore, how do we take the steps to get the Ukrainians there? Or do policymakers, perhaps in bad faith, argue that the Ukrainians, though righteous their cause be, they really can't pull this off. And therefore, we have to find some way to off-ramp this conflict where we negotiate some kind of settlement. And I think that's the real danger. And I hope we end up going with the former because any negotiated settlement will not bring peace. Putin maintains his his maximalist objectives for capturing all of Ukraine. And just like how the, the Kremlin managed to lock down the lines of control in 2014, 2015, in order to ultimately go about and try again at, at a bigger operation, uh, the, the Russians will absolutely do the same with Ukraine now. Thank you so much, George. I realize I've been asking this question quite a lot recently about the counteroffensive, I mean. So let's flip it around slightly. What are the positives that Ukraine can take out of the summer? And what lessons do you think they can take for for the future? Sure. I think the big ones that the Ukrainians have is that they've learned, they've had a lot of opportunities for introspective, for figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And it's actually not just the Ukrainians, but the Western planners uh, and campaign advisors who, who have helped supply and support and plan these operations. We know that the Ukrainians need to operate in the air domain. We know that they have to have more air defense to protect their forces on the ground to have to be able to effectively do combined arms. The attack and strike that targeted the Russian airfield and occupied Berdyansk and destroyed a number of Russian attack helicopters, that only occurred in mid-October. That strike should have occurred on day one of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, better yet in a shaping operation prior to. But the prerequisite policy decision to give the Ukrainians the attackums occurred far, far too late for the Ukrainians to be able to do that. That was an easily avoidable mistake. Another easily avoidable mistake was the, po- the late policy decision to grant the Ukrainians cluster munitions. Uh, if you recall, the United States ended up giving Ukraine cluster munition for 155 artillery well into when the counteroffensive was underway, kind of as a stopgap uh, or a crutch because the Ukrainians were running low on conventional artillery ammunition and because the Ukrainian performance was poor. Ideally, that policy decision would have been made several weeks earlier uh, so that the Ukrainians could have employed those cluster munitions as part of their initial shaping operation. We know that the Ukrainians need a more tactical air defense to protect their forces and so on and so forth. Uh, We know that the Ukrainians now need more electronic warfare assets to be able to defend their forces from uh, Russian uh, FPV drones, the first-person viewer drones, which is something that the West had never considered uh, have actually made the use of vehicles extremely lethal on the battlefield in southern Ukraine and Zaporizhia. So there's all these things that we've learned about. And 
frankly, it's actually quite good that we've learned collectively a lot of these lessons now in year two of the of the war rather than later in the war. Because the Western defense industrial base, we are spinning up a bunch of assets to support Ukraine in the long run, the long term. I think the United States right now, we produce 30,000 shells, artillery, 155 shells per month with the objective of getting up to 100,000 shells per month by 2025. I know the European defense industrial base has similar goals as well, but these things take time and, and so on and so forth. The Abrams tanks that the United States pledged, they only arrived in Ukraine in late September. They did not participate in the campaign. F-16s are being trained. Uh, the Ukrainians are training on F-16s now, and they will re also receive those aircraft in the near future. It's better that we learn all these mistakes and work out the kinks now uh, rather than later having spun all these things up. And I think it's actually if we learn the right lessons from what doesn't work and what does work in Ukraine, and we can optimize the way that we plan these operations to reinforce, find those successes, reinforce them, uh, find the mistakes and avoid stepping on those landmines literally again. That's a really, a really, really fascinating uh, account there, George. Could we speak a little bit more about the Attackums provision? I mean, you mentioned that the devastating impact it had on the occupied base in Berdyansk. What's your forecast for how these weapons might be used and their, and their impact in the war going forward? Yeah, um, Attackums, I want to be very clear, they're not a silver bullet. No weapon system is. But at the same time, in order to do combined arms, you need to have all these capabilities. The Attackums, they're, they're just a long-range precision ammunition. They have the ability to, to strike a target at a farther operational area, uh, to be able to hit those sensitive objects that the Russians want to protect that are necessary for the Russian war effort. Previously, the Ukrainians were able to achieve that effect with other systems like the HIMARS, but ever since the, the Ukrainians received those uh, in, in 2022, the Russians found mitigations to be able to offset those effects. And they started deploying their equipment and their logistics and their command and control nodes and so on and so forth, just slightly further so that they're outside the effective operational range of the HIMARS. So the provision of the attackums and the storm shadows and so on and so forth, that's all very important and necessary for the Ukrainians to be able to conduct persistent uh, precision fire against objects that the Russians need that are necessary for the prosecution of the Russian war. I think if Ukraine is able to receive sufficient ammunition to sustain their fires, it greatly increases the likelihood of them to be able to have operational success because it will force the Russians to have to deploy, again, their big ammunition depots, their command and control nodes, their big assembly areas, their uh, those sort of capabilities. It's going to stress the Russian logistics and it's those marginal effects that drastically over time in combination with other effects that also need to be undertaken that will increase the propensity for the Russian war machine to eventually uh, break down and be degraded. George, before I go to Francis, who I'm sure has got some questions as well, could we speak a little more broadly around about the artillery war. We've not spoken about it as much as maybe we should have done over the past year and a half. From your perspective, you know, could you just describe to us what is the artillery war in Ukraine? How does this uh, mean that the conflict differs, the war differs from those NATO militaries usually trained to fight? And, and what are the facts on the ground? What kind of equipment are we talking about? Ammo provision? Um, who's got the upper hand? Could you just give us your sort of your broad thoughts here? Sure. Well, the Russians and Ukrainians refer to artillery as the god of war. And they see artillery slightly differently than NATO or Western militaries do. Western and NATO militaries generally look at artillery as a supporting 
service as a supporting mechanism which enables maneuver um so you will conduct fires it supports maneuver but the key thing is really the the god of war is maneuver right the opposite is true for russians and ukrainians the russian military has always been very artillery heavy the ukrainians use artillery a lot and they fire in terms of density of fire a tremendous amount because that's because the russian philosophy of warfare is not really to use artillery as a means of supporting maneuver but rather artillery is the means of enabling maneuver that is you most of your combat most of your fighting the destruction of the adversary's maneuver elements that's done with indirect fire that's done with artillery and then at the end of the destruction of your adversary or their significant degradation you then send the maneuver units forward to be able to essentially go in pick up the like clean up the, the few remaining pieces that, that the artillery has already destroyed and because of that the russian and ukrainian consumption of artillery is just it's voracious uh, the ukrainians fire on average about 8000 shells a day some estimates have it to be up to up to 10000 the russians even more so and of course it means that the Western defense industrial base, which frankly over the course of the last 20, 30 years has atrophied because they're not prepared to be able to sustain that volume of fires uh, against uh, this style of warfare, this style of using artillery. The Ukrainians are, are very good at using it as well. The Ukrainians have been very effective at doing counter battery fire. That is identifying where the enemy is using their artillery from what positions they're firing and then returning warheads to their foreheads before the Russians are able to relocate or move. So artillery is a very important part of this war. It's a very important style to the way that the, that the Ukrainians and the Russians wage war. And it's one of the key things, particularly with ammunition, it's one of the key things that is stressing uh, the collective Western defense industrial base to be able to enable Ukraine to keep fighting. George, you've spoken about so much. This is absolutely fascinating. And um, there's a lot to get into, I think. Francis Dunley, can I turn to you? You've been listening to all of this. Where would you like to question and probe? Gosh, I mean, there's just so many different angles we could talk about. I think the first one that I would like to put to you, George, if I may, is about F-16s and modern fighter jets generally. Many people have said that part of the reason the counteroffensive has not been as successful as hoped is due to their absence. Do you agree with that? And if... We do begin to see next year and beyond those modern fighter jets coming into play for the Ukrainian armed forces. Do you believe that they will be the game changer that it seems Ukraine longs for? That's a great question. To be perfectly frank, I, I'm going to give, a, I'm gonna give a, a, a quick, straightforward answer, but then pack in a whole bunch of nuance. My take is straightforwardly no. The Ukrainians having been operational in the F-16 would not have necessarily been the, the break it, make it or break it system that would have made it this a success. Like I said, th there is no silver bullet in warfare. Attackums are not a silver bullet. F-16s are not a silver bullet. Break, break, nuance time. That said, the ability to operate in the air domain and the ability to contest and defend the airspace and also conduct your own attacks in coordination with the ability to conduct long-range deep strikes that the attackums and storm shadow provide in, a, in conjunction with the ability of maneuver that armored personnel carriers and Western-provided tanks provide, in coordination with all these other factors, that combination of capabilities is 100% uh, required for successful combined arms and is required for Ukraine's counteroffensive to be a success. 
So I think as if you were to say and do a thought experiment, say, oh, well, if the Ukrainians had X, Y, Z sooner, I think the wrong conclusion is to say, if so facto, if they had it, they would have been successful. Rather, it's the Ukrainians need all these things to be successful. And it's it's difficult to say the Ukrainians, we should be surprised that the Ukrainians could not have been as successful when they were deprived of many of the systems necessary. But not to say that receiving those systems are, are going to be a sure proof that they're going to be good at it. Another key thing that's really important, I think, for the Ukrainians is the combined arms training. Like the Ukrainians have to get good at combined arms. I think they can do it. I think there's a lot of people that argue that the Ukrainians cannot do it, that the Ukrainians simply they have a skill cap issue or the systems are, are, are too sophisticated for them to operate. And frankly, I, I find those arguments patronizing and ridiculous. The Ukrainians have demonstrated that they're actually quite technologically sophisticated soldiers. They're quite good soldiers. And every time we've given them some form of sophisticated Western weaponry, they master it very quickly and employ it very usually pretty well. We need to redefine our training and use the kind of training that actually works for the Ukrainians. A, big, a lot of problems happened over the course of the spring and the summer with the Ukrainian forces that were training in, in Germany and other places where the NATO trainers, American trainers, essentially tried to mirror image what NATO doctrine should be and what should look like in its ideal form and push it down onto the Ukrainians, whereas the Ukrainians actually have more experience with what it's like to fight against a peer adversary, against Russia in particular. And the NATO doctrine... It actually, when it, when implemented, uh, in part, it did not hold up against against the Russian adversary and the Russian threat. And so the Ukrainians had to improvise and change. And so really, what NATO needs to do is, and this is a difficult you know pill to swallow, but they need to swallow their pride and realize that, okay, the Ukrainians need these capabilities, and we need to let the Ukrainians be able to operate the way that they know how to fight, the way that is effective for them, and actually realize that we... NATO have more to learn from the Ukrainians in terms of doctrine and best standard operating procedures, how to operate against Russian threats than theoretically what our own textbooks teach us. The second thing that I'll also add in conclusion is another key constraining factor that's really affecting the Ukrainians is not the fact that they don't have F-16s or they don't have XYZ system, but the fact that the Ukrainians don't have the planning, the operational planning flexibility to be able to know that they can afford to lose equipment. This is a really big deal because right now when the Ukrainians receive X number of Leopard tanks, X number of Challenger tanks, X number of Abrams tanks, these have no guarantee that they're ever going to be replaced. And so it's very difficult for the Ukrainian general staff to go into a campaign and and say, it's okay if we lose 50 Leopard tanks in this operation or if we lose all 14 of the Challenger tanks because those are going to be replaced for the next phase of the operation in a couple of months, and that's okay. As far as they're aware, all that they have now is all that they can guarantee and so it leads to a kind of very conservative decision-making where you look at these assets that really aren't spectacular assets as a strategic resource because it's all you might ever receive. And ironically, if you lose them in combat, it might Im- influence the political perceptions from the Western backers and then decrease the likelihood of you getting replacements again. And so the Ukrainians are also constrained in their decision-making and the way that they conserve these systems precisely because we've not given them the flexibility to say, it's okay if you lose these vehicles, they're going to be replaced. And that, of course, also decreases their, their ability to plan for contingencies and branches and 
and, and what level of losses are acceptable for these operations. So all of these things are, are constraints that have, I think, decreased Ukraine effectively. Thank you. I think you're very neatly bringing together many of the themes we've been discussing throughout this counteroffensive. So it's very interesting hearing your perspective sort of zoomed out on this. So training is vital, knowing that they're going to be having much more support in terms of consistently bringing in weapons, heavy munitions, etc., artillery, and also fighter jets. Are there any other things that you think are missing from the Ukrainian stocks or in terms of training, etc., that are now, we can see, going to be vital for the future of the war? Yeah, we need to, besides the training, which is a big one, they're going to need a lot of breaching equipment. The Russian field fortifications are effective um, and the Ukrainians are going to need a lot of breaching equipment. They're going to need the flexibility to know that what they lose will be replaced. And I think one of the unforeseen things that has come to fruition in this campaign in particular is the electronic warfare uh, component. I think the Ukrainians, I've watched hours of combat footage of Russian UAVs, commercially available UAVs and drones that both drop warheads directly onto Ukrainian forces from attack, you know, attack down positions. And then the first person viewer drones that, that a pilot physically flies a kamikaze uh, drone into a vehicle. Um, these, this has made it extremely difficult for the Ukrainians to operate the vehicles across the southern Ukrainian steppe in Zaporizhia. And the answer to that is the Ukrainians need to have more uh, electronic, defensive electronic warfare systems to be able to protect their forces from those sorts of attacks. The Russians are investing in it and the Russians have better electronic warfare capabilities. It's always been a, a, a system type that the Russians have pioneered and have been more effective at employing. So, so Western backers and planners need to start knowing that, okay, over two years ago, the proliferation of FPV drones as a means of, you know, targeting and plinking a vehicle, that, that was not a capability, but it is now a Russian capability and uh, we need to develop countermeasures for it. Thank you. And just turning then to the Russian armed forces, I said that one of the critiques that's being made of the timepiece is by being so specifically focused on the Ukrainian picture that it just assumes that the Russian army is strong, that it's continuing to mobilise forces and that it is, in a sense, unchanging in its military position. Where would you, how would you judge the state of the Russian armed forces at present? Do you think that they are perhaps more degraded than many people realise, because there does seem to be this assumption that's taken root in many Western capitals that the Russian armed forces are reliably in position. But that seems to be something that is being increasingly challenged. Yeah, no, the Russian military is not defeated. They've been crippled and they've been definitely degraded to a su- substantial effect. But but they're far from defeated. And I, I agree with the critique that the West has done enough to ensure that the blame for any hypothetical decisive Ukraine defeat cannot be pegged on any given Western capital or, or Western leader. But nobody's actually taken the subsequent steps to ensure that the Ukrainians can actually go ahead and, and, and win. The Russian military, despite all of its problems, and it's very broken in a variety of ways that many people have written about. I will, I will spare no additional words there unless you want to get into it. But they still managed to be able to cobble together enough forces for continued offensive operations like the one we saw in Evgivka through their national pseudo-mobilization campaign. The Russian defense industrial base continues to refurbish and produce tanks, though at a small number. 
they've managed to be able to use sanctions evasion schemes through their trading partners to be able to source the pieces and the parts required for actually restoring their pre-war missile and precision guided munition production and they're on track to exceed it moving forward into the next year um they've managed to also you know find creative ways to be able to get access to ammunition. The North Korean artillery shells, about half a million shells to, uh, to the Russians is one such example. So the Russians remain a threat. And it's very likely, I think, that the Russians will probably, Putin will probably declare a mobilization after the presidential election in March 2024. Uh, because it's very clear that the Russians need that and they can do it. I just think that politically Putin will, will stave that off until after his election, re-election. Um, that said... We need to be very serious about how we consider the Russian threat. They're not defeated. They're, build, they're building up. They're bulking up. And the Russian strategy is predicated on time is on the Russian side. And that, frankly, that's true. They have a larger defense industrial base that they can leverage against Ukraine. Their political will has not, I think, been decisively defeated. I don't think it will be. Um, the key thing is that the, the, the Ukrainians have the capabilities to defeat the Russians, that they're, the Russian, because the Russian intent is not going to ever change. I'd also add that the Russians, they seek to rebuild uh, a Soviet-style army. Back in January, the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, announced his intent to conduct reforms, which included creating 12 new Russian maneuver divisions, which is a substantial large force. Uh, it's, it's the kind of military structure that looks more like the Red Army of the 1980s than the contemporary Russian military of, of the of the 2010s um, that was redesigned to sort of be this lean, mean, highly professional modern force that'd be able to respond effectively to Russia crises and wars in Russia's periphery. The Russians have learned the lesson in Ukraine that actually that doesn't work. The effort to professionalize and have a small but theoretically more efficient force doesn't work. And so now they're going back to the tried and true Russian model of more mass is really what's going to carry the day. Now, it's going to take many years for the Russians to rebuild that uh, capability, um, which really, I think, should impress upon these policymakers uh, on, on, the, on really, number one, the opportunity now that the Ukrainians have to try to defeat the Russians before they spin these things up. And number two, the danger that exists, that is, if we're complacent with the Ukrainians having successfully so far defended their state, and really, if, if the current lions are locked down and that's not the end of the world that's just that's very short-sighted it kicks the can down the road it's not going to provide any lasting peace um especially as the russians revise substantially the way that, that they see their military requirements to achieve their national objectives well thank you george really interesting insights one final question i think many people expect as winter approaches that this is going to be you know a frozen conflict you've already said that that is not the case and we shouldn't expect that to be the case what do you think the next phase of the war is going to look like in the next few months i think uh, fighting is going to continue over the course of the winter the weather is going to slow tempo of operations but it's not going to stop i suspect that the russians are going to continue attempting attacks against avdivka um, kind of like how they perhaps as they might have done against bakhmut with just shoveling more resources into it and trying to brute force tactical gains over the course of a long time. I also am very concerned about a new potential major Russian offensive in a relatively underlooked piece of the theater, which is northeast Ukraine, in the Kharkiv-Luhansk 
area heading towards the operationally significant town of Kupinsk in northern Kharkiv Oblast. The Russians have been deploying, reportedly deploying substantial forces to that sector, and there have been some Russian military journalists who have referred to the, the town of Kupinsk as, uh, their words, not mine, becoming a Bakhmut 2.0. Now, I, I don't know if it's going to come to fruition or not, especially depending on what executive decisions Russian general staff makes or what, what Putin does. But there might be, I think, a renewed Russian offensive effort to try to push in that area as well. The Ukrainians, of course, are going to try to continue conducting their operations. Unclear to me when their southern campaign, they'll finally stop trying to conduct operations there. Hopefully they will not. And it's to be determined to see what kind of presence the Ukrainians can establish on the left bank of the, the Dnipro River in Kherson, which is where the, there's an apparent uh, Ukrainian river crossing effort underway. Well, George, thank you so much for dealing with all of our questions. It's been really fascinating listening to you. Is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our listeners to hear? Yeah, I think the key thing is, listen, Ukraine right now is still in just as much of an existential fight right now than as it was in February 2022. The drama and the hysterics of there being Russian troops on the doorstep of Kiev is absent now. But the Russians have tried and quite successfully conducted an information operation to make it seem as if Ukraine is basically okay, they're in a fine enough state, that the Russians, if they capture what they have and lock down the lines, and if there are peace talks like Lavrov hasn't tried to entice us with, that all be hunky-dory. And that's not the case. The current war is not about who controls 17.8% of occupied Ukraine right now. It's still... Will we allow the Russians to permanently use one fifth of Ukraine as a spring as a permanent springboard from which it can continue to attempt to attack and, and undermine Ukraine and eventually finish what it started ultimately in 2014 and intensified in 2022? I think that if we back down from this challenge now, the likelihood of the Russians being able to leverage their, their strategy of patience uh, increases exponentially. And therefore, even though the going is tough right now and the situation doesn't seem that bad, it really actually is quite a dangerous moment. And we need to be decisive in the way that uh, we we evaluate uh, the requirements for support of Ukraine. Well, thank you so much, George Barros, for joining us today. We'll come back to you shortly for a, for a quick final thought. And maybe during that, you can tell us a little bit about how listeners can follow your work and the work of the ISW as a whole. But for the very first final thought, can I go to Francis Sternley? Thanks, David. Just a very brief one from me. There is this prevailing narrative taken as a given one hears regularly that the world is switching off from Ukraine due to events taking place in the Middle East and elsewhere. That may be true to a degree in the high echelons of politics, but as far as our listeners and readers are concerned, we've been crunching the numbers here. And in reality, we've not seen any drop off. Quite the opposite. Our numbers continue to grow. Perhaps as war generally becomes a more pressing concern, more people are switching to geopolitics. And if that's you, welcome. But more broadly, I think there are so many people who are deeply invested in what is happening in Ukraine, knowing its importance far beyond the confines of that country. They are not fickle. They're not switching off. They're not looking away. And neither will we. 
So thank you for sticking with us. And I just wanted to, I suppose, conclude today by questioning that prevailing narrative, because I think that it has been one that is unquestioned and unscrutinised and is actually untrue. Thank you very much, Francis. George, as our guest, would you like the very final words? I think this is uh, it's a decisive moment for times of choosing. I'm optimistic about Ukraine's prospects if if the collective West decides to decisively back this. I know World War II analogies are, you know, perhaps uh, a little superfluous right now, but I, I like to look back to the old adage that uh, FDR had about America being the arsenal of democracy. It took four years, really, between 1940 and 1944 for um, specifically America's defense industrial base to be able to spin up and make the, the U.S. military into the basically bring it from nothing and bring it into a uh, to become the predominant industrialized military force on, on the planet. But these things take time and the spin up time for these things, it, you know, it cannot be done overnight. And so having looking at us now and, and at the end of year two of this war, if we're serious about backing the, the Ukrainians and dealing with the defense industrial base problems and ensuring that the Ukrainians have all that they need to do the war, um, and we learn how to fix the kinks and learn the lessons from the counteroffensive of, of 2022, then I think that the Ukrainians will have a fair shot. I think the bad response, the bad takeaway is to say, ah, 2022 didn't pan out as we had expected. This is all a lost cause and then throw the baby out with the bathwater. That, that is precisely the incorrect conclusion. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Produced today by Louise Wells. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.